0: Welcome to the Boost Health Podcast, where we are searching for wellness balance. Your host is Paul Samberg, a certified strength and conditioning specialist with nearly 20 years of experience in the health and fitness industry and degrees in human biology and business. At Boost Health, our passion is to learn and share new wellness tactics and help individuals create their own personal health strategy. Join us on this journey of being open-minded and trying new things. You can learn more at MyBoostHealth.com. Welcome to the show. Find your balance. 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 Find your balance. That is our goal here at Boost Health. Welcome to episode number 46 of the Boost Health Podcast. Today's show features special guest, Jim Cotton. We had a fantastic chat that I think will really resonate with a lot of folks. We talk about Jim's move from a stable accounting job in London to a freelance writer, his battle with disordered eating and cycling performance, strength training for endurance athletes, over-specialization in sport, our love and hate relationship with Strava, the best place in the world to ride your bike, and why Jim doesn't recommend it, and how he finds his wellness balance. First, a couple quick announcements, and then we'll jump right into the show. Boost Health TV. The Boost Health podcast is now available via video format on the Boost Health TV YouTube channel. Boost Health TV also includes several awesome workout videos, including a new one I just created that requires no equipment. I will link to the channel in the show notes and blog so you can check it out. Newsletter. If you haven't already signed up for the weekly boost newsletter, you can do so very simply by putting your name and email into the form on the homepage of myboosthealth.com. This way you don't miss any Boost Health news. All right. Now here is episode number 46, Balancing Sport Performance with Nutrition Needs and Possible Overspecialization, featuring Jim Cotton. My guest on the show today is Jim Cotton. Now, Jim was working in a very stable career job in London and he didn't enjoy it. And he didn't enjoy London life and had a few issues in general. So he ditched the career and London life and moved to the countryside with no job, only idea of becoming a rider in cycling. And he'd already started a blog and had a master's degree in English lit. So he wasn't just starting this from nowhere. So he spent a year living off very little and getting small bits of riding work. And he stuck with it, and over the next three or four years, developed his portfolio and profile, including work with leading UK and US cycling magazine websites. Now, Jim is an endurance rider predominantly, loving riding in the mountains. He works as a brand ambassador for Hot Root and is a Marmot Grand Fondo addict. Now, I'm probably butchering how you actually properly say that. So excuse me on that, but I I know what they are. I just can't say them properly. <laughs> you did pretty well. Oh, thank you. You're being too kind. Jim struggles a bit with disordered eating. And I think this is really, really interesting and it's going to benefit a lot of people. So I really appreciate Jim talking about this and and it can get to the point where it impacts his performance. And he's been dealing with this for for seven or eight, eight, eight years. So we're going to talk about this later in the show. He's done some weightlifting. This is actually something that Jim and I have connected on a lot. And I really appreciate this because some of my endurance buddies, I can't get into the gym and lifting weights or they might just do some core work. But Jim gets in there, he throws around some heavy weights and he really works hard. So I, I really like this about Jim. And you can check out Jim's work on mountainmutton.com. And you can see links to all of his magazine articles and his blog. He's actually an outstanding writer. I was telling him earlier uh, I thought I was an okay writer until I started reading his stuff and it just made me mad how good of a <laughs> writer he is. So the name of your site's mountainmutton.com so my first question to you Jim is where did this name mountain mutton come from?
1: It was a, it's a sort of a, a a bit of a joke that I think a lot of people don't really get and um I have a, a bad habit of making jokes which are a little bit too sort of clever for their own <laughs> uh, their own worth so basically, there's the phrase in cycling, mountain goat, which ref- basically means you're a good climber and you go well up a mountain. And I love cycling in the mountains, and this kind of the side of riding that I'm best at. Um, so it was, a, it was a reference to mountain goat, but I also don't want people to think I'm taking myself too seriously or that um, I'm that good. So I thought mutton is, you know, it's an old stringy type of lamb or sheep. uh, And it's sort of just indicating perhaps like I'm an old past it useless mountain goat. Like maybe I was once good or I'm a bad version of a mountain goat. So that's that's what it is, basically.
0: Well. So I will correct everybody that might think that about you straight away. So I have some friends that I cycle with here in Hong Kong who um, I would consider world-class cyclists. And I know um, some of the international rides that you've done in the same race with them, you've put them under by quite a few minutes. So uh, you're a damn good cyclist. And uh, <laughs> and if you want to call yourself mountain mutton, that's just fine. It, it means you're a heck of a good cyclist, a good climber at that. So, so we know now you're a good cyclist, but have you always loved cycling? When did you really get into cycling? Uh,
1: quite late, actually. So, quite a lot of people who take cycling so seriously, as uh, so I'm I'm in my early thirties, and a lot of people who are still really loving the bike at my age and taking it so seriously get into it through their parents, like maybe when they're in their teenagers, but. For me, I, I've always loved cycling, and I've always loved being outdoors. So when I was a kid, I would have a mountain bike and I'd go off adventuring in the woods, and you know, coming getting lost in the woods and coming back about three hours later than I told my mum I would. Uh, and then when I went to university uh, and all all through my teenagers teenage years, I would mess around on my bike a bit and just have fun. Went to university and inevitably a lot of sport took the back seat because of parties and studying. But I still rode my bike just to get around, like to commute and um, to get to to classes. And uh, when I moved to London, I kept riding for commuting. And then the longer I spent living in London, the more and more I wanted to sort of get out of london because it's, it's such a big claustrophobic place so i started using just my commute bike and just go riding out of the city on like big long adventures just kind of like riding a road bike around and and the more and this was probably when i was in my mm, about 23 24 25 and the more and more i did it and the better i got just just like on a fairly average like aluminium uh, commuter road bike. The more I got into it, and the, the more I started doing it, and the more I started, learn- I started reading about it, about how to train and like what bikes are good. And the more I did it, the more I got into it, and then I started taking it much more seriously and sort of competitively from the age of around mm, twenty-five, twenty-six. All, all, all my life though, I've been into quite into sport. So all through school and university, I did. I played rugby union and I did a lot of running. So I'm, I'm naturally actually a better runner than a than I am cyclist. Like it's, I'm very, I'm quite tall and thin, and I've got a runner's build. But um, I'm quite prone to injury when I run. So I. I kind of, I did it for a few years and then I, I stopped, uh, and cycling, you know, you don't, you don't get that impact injury stuff with cycling. So yeah, so that's where I am now, really.
0: That's interesting. Um, I have two good friends of mine that kind of have that same story of like really, really strong runner. Um, and they're both really good cyclists and to find out that they're even stronger on the run is pretty, is pretty, uh, it's deflating for, for somebody like me that's trying to keep up. Um, I want to know if you agree with them. So they told me this in separate instances. My friend, uh, Scott back in the U S um, who ran in university said that he, when he's climbing a hill that's on the bike, that's the closest thing he feels to running. And then my friend Sheil here, who's, who's also a world-class runner from the UK, um, says the same thing. And they're both like crazy fast climbers. And they say it's like they have something to push against and it sort of feels like running when they're, when they're climbing up a hill. Is, that, is it like that for you?
1: Yeah, that's really, really interesting that they say that actually because um, when you stand in the pedals, when you climb up a steep hill, Uh, So when you're out of the saddle, it's more kind of it opens up your body, uh, opens up your hips and your Mm -hmm. hip flexors, and it's more of a similar action to running. And that is actually something that I first heard said by, so there's a pro cyclist who rides for EF uh, Pro Cycling, and uh, he's called Mike Woods. And he's like one of the best in the world at climbing. So he's, you know, um, he he could be a contender at a Grand Tour like the Tour de France. He's like top ten rider. Hmm. But he, his background, he he was the he was a world class runner until the age of about twenty six, and I can't remember the story as to why, but he stopped running, and he is now like this world class climber on a bike. And he said exactly that in that, um, climbing up a steep mountain when you're out of the saddle is a really similar sort of action to running. So that goes back to what your friend said. And yeah, I, I agree. Uh, So I think, yeah, runners make good climbers, I guess.
0: I must be something to it. Uh, I have a similar feeling where they're both like make my heart rate go through the roof and, and I'm in uh, extreme pain, but I don't think it's quite the same, quite a vibe that you guys are talking about. (laughs) (laughs)
1: No, it is, it is, we all feel the same amount of pain, it's just some of us are going a little bit faster as we do it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, um, I believe it was the Marmot race, you wrote a a really cool article on decoding data that I want to talk about a little bit later more, but I looked at um, your Strava from that, that you very nicely shared, and so this was like, I think it was a seven plus hour ride um, over a few mountains. And your heart rate was in zone two. It was like 140 average or something like that over the course of the whole ride. Like mine would be at 180 in the first three minutes. Like the, the fact that you're able to, I, I know there's a lot of work and a lot of training that goes into that, but to, to climb a mountain like that and to keep your heart rate down that low and still be working pretty hard is pr- a pretty good sign of a, of a strong climber.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that one, that that sort of zone two, might have been an average because there was definitely times when I was like deep in the red (laughs) but yeah to to do endurance sports like that where most of the things I compete in most are five six seven hours you do need to uh, you do need to have a be able to control your heart rate as much as possible and more importantly not let uh let it drift too much so Uh, there's a thing of cardiac drift where your heart rate keeps getting higher and higher and higher, even at the same intensity. And um, a lot of my training is like quite low intensity, but just training that drift to not to drift too much, you know, to keep me efficient. Um, So, yeah, my my general heart rate is low. Like my my resting wake-up heart rate is about 38. Oh, my gosh. (laughs)
0: See, this is what, let's talk about this for a second. So this is what people need to understand about endurance training, cardiovascular training. Let's not even say endurance. So I I like the way, I think Ben Greenfield said it this way once. I think it's a good analogy. So if we think of our heart as like a battery, okay, your battery or your heart has so many beats in it. Okay. So let's say it's a trillion beats, whatever. When you go out and you train, you're going to get your heart rate going higher than it normally would when you're just at rest. Everybody knows that. Why do we do that? Because for the times that you're not training, how much less work is it actually doing? So if you've got that trillion heartbeats in your battery over the span of your life, if you average out the times that you went up to your 140 average or 150 or 160 versus the time where you're asleep at night for eight hours, I hope, um, where it's at 38, that's going to add up a lot slower than somebody that's at 60 or 65 where they're at rest. That's why you do cardiovascular training. That's why you keep your heart in in check because you're going to be doing less work over time. If you get your heart functioning more efficiently, that's 38 disgusting. I don't know how you live with yourself.
1: <laughs> it's already low, like my maximum heart rate is also really low. And I know some people who are, much better endurance athletes than me, who's resting might be fifty. Yeah, mm. I think there is a lot of relative. True. Like relative, when you relative when you go up
0: in the red, what is it? What does it look like for you? If you're smashing it up a hill, everything you got. What where where are you maxing at?
1: My max is probably about one seventy.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I wonder. I I've got a relatively small band between my resting and my max. Whereas if your are resting is say 60, I bet your max is nearly two. I know some people whose max is like 210. And if I hit 210, I'd probably be dead. Like, in hospital. <laughs> right, so. right.
0: Um, before we move on, I want to make sure we talk about this transition that you did. So you're a freelance writer, as we talked about in your bio. And so this transition, it sounds kind of scary to me. Like you had this really cool, stable job in London, but you're kind of done with it. You're done with the gig. You're done with London life. What was that transition life where you're sort of living off of ramen noodles for the first year or two?
1: Yeah, it was tough. So when I lived, I was in London for 10 years and I was doing, uh, so really briefly, I've got a master's in English literature, but I also have a accountancy qualification. I'm actually a chartered accountant as well. Mm. And I fell into this accountancy job and I didn't like it. And I left, as you said, and I left London. And for that first year, um, when I was trying to build my sort of portfolio of writing work, it was really tough. Like, I, I luckily I had some connections at a local bike shop, and I was working there on like very minimal uh, pay, just just being like a sales guy in like it's a cafe, it's a cafe as well, like serving up coffees and stuff. And it was really really nervy. Because I, I knew that I'd left a a job where I probably, as long as I pulled my weight, could have been there until I was 50 or 60. And I was getting paid a reasonable amount. Um, but also in the back of my mind, I did have these qualifications. Like I did have an accountancy qualification, which if I really had to, I could use to get a job in a commercial sphere like to be an accountant or a business guy Um, but basically I was I, I was stressed like all the time I was worried all the time and I would spend huge amounts of my time just researching brands that might want a freelance copywriter so I was looking for gigs in mostly in sport and cycling and Cycling um sort of journalism, yeah, I just had to i mean the first six months I was like, it's okay it'll come it'll come the second six months the work was still like really slow to come, and that's when I was like, holy s like you know, mm-hmm. should I have done this but I just kind of kept kept faith with it and I just like I just stuck it out for a little bit longer, and then I just got a few gigs kind of after about a year of not really having much that started to get the ball rolling and kind of gave me confidence to keep going with it. And I was still not earning much, but I sort of started having these few gigs behind me, gave me confidence in myself that I could probably carve something out of this sort of life. And I was just really, I was, I was much more enjoying my life like being freelance I could if I wanted to like I did yesterday go and do five hours on my bike on a Monday morning uh whereas everybody else would be like uh oh, Monday morning I've got to go to the office and <laughs> you know sit here for eight or nine hours so yeah it was it was just patience and very nerves very nervy time but yeah you've got to, you've got to believe in yourself and I I, um, don't have family, didn't have a mortgage. And I was like, if I'm going to try and do this, I'm going to do it now. Yeah. And I've left London and I've left the job. So I've I've got to give it a decent bit of time to try it. Because if I go back to London or if I go back to a commercial job now, then I can't really try and do this again. You know, this is like my one chance to try it.
0: Yeah, that was good foresight by you to realize that the time was now to, to go for it. And it was nice to sort of understand you had the qualifications to have a, a plan B if you needed to. But I wonder if, yeah. um, I'm curious if it made you a better writer. I, I, as I said earlier, I think you're a really good writer. Is there, do you think that that time where you're really working hard to make a name for yourself and, and get in print, do you think that made you a better writer or did that make a difference at all?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I've never really thought about that before. I guess, um, it gave me quite a lot of time to write my own personal blog, which you referred to in my bio, uh, Mountain Mutton thing, which perhaps kind of helped build my personality yeah. as a writer, uh, a little bit. And perhaps, uh, I'm not sure. It, it sort of made me very honest with myself and, The things I was writing because as you'll know Paul from the things you read in my blog I'm quite open and honest about things Um, and I don't really hold back with what I say Uh, sorry I've sort of I've sort of lost my own tangent here a bit I guess the work that I was doing putting a lot of concentration into and whether that be my personal blog or the Uh, writing I was being paid for. So it kind of did help hone my skills. Yes.
0: Yeah. Sorry. It was kind of a random question, but I was just wondering if you probably were just a a gifted writer to begin with and that's fine. (laughs) I was just wondering if, you know, when you're, you know, scrapping a little bit, if it, if it, if it honed your skills at all,
1: I think it did to some extent, but I did have the formal qualification like as a a master's degree in English
0: literature, which, which helped. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about cyclists and strength training. Okay. (laughs) So I've had a lot of fun watching you. We got to know each other on Jules site Unfound, which is really cool. If you guys haven't checked it out, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. We actually put links to everything we talk about in the show notes and blog, like always. So I've started following you on Instagram. And so I've been really watching you this winter in the off season, hitting those barbells hard. Um, but for most cyclists that's why i you know i've I've really enjoyed getting to know you and watching you there's there's an aversion to lifting weights um especially in season like oh off season, okay, maybe you'll see some some folks trickle into the gym that are, are usually just hardcore cyclists, and I think it's out of concern of getting too heavy well, I know it is um or getting too sore before their next workout on the bike and worried about hindering your performance so what's your take on this? You know, from your personal experience and you obviously, you know, out in the field, see a lot of other cyclists and, and what their workouts are. What what do you see in the endurance community? Is it, is it pretty consistent with that where there's this aversion to lifting weights, especially by cyclists, because they're concerned about mass and about performance loss?
1: Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, really. There's two, two reasons a lot of people. Well, three reasons, I guess, actually, a lot of people don't do it. Uh, I'm lucky. The first one, which you didn't actually mention, is that I'm lucky in that I have a, a to- more or less totally flexible schedule and uh, I have like facilities available to me. I, my friend, runs a gym so I can go and use that. But yes. I think one thing is if an athlete only has eight hours a week or 10 hours a week to train and they're a cyclist, they think, oh, I can't put, I don't want to put two hours of that to the gym because that's less time on the bike so I think one is actually the time availability but the, I think the main two really really are what you said the first one being in cycling as you alluded to unless you're like a track rider you know you're a rider on the velodrome weight is a real big impact has a real big impact into how fast you go and inevitably if you're lifting weights and you're doing them well then you're going to gain some muscle mass mm-hmm. uh so that does put people off uh and uh, yeah the third thing which you alluded to earlier is that soreness that you get um and i i uh, that sort of doms the delayed onset muscle soreness thing it (laughs) it can really really impact a training session on the bike um i think it's as much a mental thing as a physical thing because if you sometimes what particularly when i first so, so i've kind of lifted on off for the last three or four years and when you first start doing it like so you have your in the peak of the season, I don't do it much. But then, I, in off season, I really ramp it up again. And when I first start ramping it up in that first month, if I haven't been lifting much because the previous months was the height of my season, then the DOMs is just awful. Like I'll put my, throw my leg over the saddle to go for a ride, and my glutes and my hamstrings would be like nearly cramping and stuff. <laughs> and, that doesn't, and that doesn't do much good for your mental attitude to the ride uh right. and i think that but i think that both of those issues like the weight and the soreness if you're doing it well and you're doing the program right and you perhaps got guidance then after a month well the soreness at least should it start to ease and fit part of why I actually reached out to you, Paul, in the first instance was like, you know, managing my nutrition to potentially try and help. And like my kind of mobility and things like your kind of areas of expertise to try and mitigate that soreness. Um, because yeah, it does really impact how you ride when, when your legs hurt a lot already. (laughs) Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, And I think as a, as a strength and conditioning coach, I really love seeing efforts made um, by endurance athletes who recognize the benefit, um, not only in power, but explosivity and injury prevention when you add strength training. And, and I like to, to hope that it would be something that's part of the program year-round, not just in the off-season. So I'm seeing that more and more. And what I'm trying to um, express um, carefully because I'm not tr- I'm not trying to rub anybody the wrong way but I'm trying to I'm trying to help people understand that if they can just do three days a week of full body strength training I'm not talking about this crazy like you know 500 pound deadlifts and you know 100 pound dumbbells on bench like you can do a reasonable full body strength <clears throat> workout even just with your body weight if you're traveling. I mean you don't need anything fancy but you can do a good, Full body strength workout three times a week, say it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a day in between to rest and you can be out on the bike or whatever when you're doing that, you won't get sore. If you can do that for a few weeks in a row, three days a week, full body, you will not get sore. You will not get that delayed onset muscle soreness. Now I'm not a good endurance athlete like you and a lot of my buddies are, but I can sort of keep their taillights in my sight and... And I'm not sore. The reason I'm not keeping up with them is for a number of things, but it's not because I'm, I'm sore. That soreness will go away if you're consistent with it three times a week. But I understand, I understand the, the limited hours per week, maybe a little bit less love for the strength than there is for the bike and, and, and a lot of the things that we're battling. But I just want to put that out there in the universe that if, if you can be consistent with it, that, excuse me, that, that soreness that, that does go away. Because your body adapts.
1: That's that's interesting because if if you do, say, have, just for example, 10 hours a week to train, it's just about understanding and having somebody perhaps like you who is a, a strength coach but understands riding. Because a lot of the time you have a cycling coach who knows a little bit about strength, but it seems like you don't get many... PTs or strength trainers who know much about cycling. It's about having somebody who can guide you as to what is the right mix of bike time and uh, you know weightlifting or full body workout time. Because when you're a cyclist, you think, and especially for endurance sports, a lot of a lot of the success in endurance sport is about volume. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of programs saying or you know with this high intensity program you can be just as good off of 5 hours of high intensity training as you can off of 30 hours of you know big volume training but i think there's a real reason why pro cyclists the best cyclists are doing 25 30 hours a week um throughout the year and and yeah they're probably doing on top of that they're doing 25 hours on the bike but maybe five hours in the gym as well. So it's just understanding for an amateur athlete how much time they can spend in the gym and if that will detract from their bike time and their bike fitness.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, it's all about mitochondrial density. And you can get there basically two ways. You can get there slow and low, or you can get there with interval training where you're getting up and staying out of the gray area and getting up into zone four and zone five and, you know, going up and down Hong Kong's great because you have interval training out your door, (laughs) you go left, you have a hill and you're up and down or you go right and you have a hill and up and down. It's sort of built in. But if you, if you have that interval session, you know, once or twice a week and you have that zone two session a couple times a week, that kind of takes care of the mitochondrial density from both sides. Um, so I would be somebody that would argue for, and, and maybe I'm just getting somebody for 30 minutes doing a full body session. If I could just get him to be consistent with that three times a week, I would only be asking for an hour and a half, honestly, with dynamic warm up and cool down. Um, maybe two hours total out of that, say, given eight or nine that they have, and it's oh, it's well worth it, especially if you have somebody that is mixing in uh, impact sports like like running from an injury yeah. prevention standpoint it's it's just critical
1: one thing i do enjoy about lifting is i just like the mental i like the mental it's i like training doing something different that that doesn't involve sitting on a bike
0: because mm-hmm.
1: especially in winter when you're like so in the uk at the minute it's Today it's like minus one or minus two. <laughs> Yesterday I went out on my bike for five hours and it was about one degree all day and I'm not going to say it was the most fun. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the times when I'm in, and then the other times I'm on a turbo trainer and that's not always the most fun. And whilst I still love riding, sometimes it's nice just to have the mental break of doing something that's completely different and like, you know, going to a gym and, yeah, lifting some weights just it's good. I think it's good for the soul to do something a bit different and you know mix the kind of the stimulus up a bit.
0: It's that's so true. And there's something sort of like primal about like picking up something heavy and executing like a deadlift or a or a press or a pull-up with good form. It just it make I think you and I talked about that one time. It just it feels really good.
1: Yeah, it's satisfying. It, yeah. It, you do feel good for it like your whole body feels kind of good afterwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, I just, agree. it
0: makes you feel strong. I, I want to talk about um, possible overspecializing, and I have to be careful with this one um, just because I don't, my goal isn't to make somebody upset, but I want to, I just want people to think about just more holistically about their, their fitness, <clears throat> their wellness, I should say. And so, and this, and it's not just endurance athletes. You see it in CrossFit, obstacle course racing, even dragon boat racing here in Hong Kong, which is sort of a, a rowing sport. It's really, really big here. As is trail running. And I think, I think folks sort of fall in love with fill in the blank sport, endurance, strength, CrossFit, whatever it is, and the competition around the sport. And then so they sort of focus on, okay, I've got to get better at this sport. I've got to get faster at this time. I've got to put out this power. I've got to beat whoever this person is over here in my age group, whatever. And they lose the focus on why they started maybe training in the first place, which most of the time is to be healthier um, or maybe even to have a bit of fun. And they start worrying too much about those things that I just mentioned. Instead of the overall strategy of w- making themselves healthier and, and happier. I I, th- I think I'm seeing this happening more and more where the benefit of competition is almost overriding the benefit of overall wellness and having the the connection across the different wellness dimensions like social and emotional and spiritual and environmental. It's just all physical, all the time, all competition.
1: Yeah, no, I do really agree with that in that... Um... When you start kind of calling yourself a cyclist, like in inverted commas, as I do, like i.e. as you spend more time cycling and you know that's what you really focus on and that's what you compete in, you do lose sight of your overall health and well-being, and uh, a lot of people. I don't know much about the research behind it because i've never really bothered reading into it to be honest but a lot of people say that cyclists because it's a non-weight-bearing sport you should do some impact type of sport or some weight-bearing sport such as running or lifting because it's for your bone density yes just sitting on sitting on a bike and pedaling and not bearing any weight means your bone density goes down a lot. So there is that side to being a full body, to doing mixed sorts of um, activity. And I think you really hit the nail on the head in that when you start to specialize and you start getting really focused on cycling or running or CrossFit or something, you do lose sight on the fact that you are probably just an amateur who – nobody is going to remember in ten years' time. Let's face it, 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 with regards to you being a cyclist, and that you would have started cycling because you loved the fresh air, you loved how the endorphins made you feel. Mm-hmm. You yeah, wanted to make sure you you wanted to make sure you were looking after yourself on a basic level, and then you just think, oh well, I can't go for a, and a lot of people like that take cycling as serious as me. Will do this. So if their family or their girlfriend or someone says, "Let's go on a walk up a mountain for five hours," they'll be like, "No way!" Because that will ruin my legs for <laughs> life. And right. if somebody said that to me, if somebody said that to me now, let's go on like a five-hour hike up a up a huge mountain. I would be like, "Well, I can't because I'm training tomorrow and right. I'm going to feel awful." And you, you you do lose sight of what's fun. And I do sometimes envy people like, say, my sister or some of my friends who they like training and they like um, outdoor pursuits, but they don't take any of them seriously. And they don't they they exercise to look after themselves and to have fun. And they might, you know, casually go for a half hour run a couple of times a week. They go for a swim if they fancy it. They might go and do some CrossFit because they got given a class for Christmas or something and they're doing all sorts of stuff. And it's really interesting and varied and they're really enjoying it. Whereas when you when you start specializing and you're doing like, you know, maybe fifteen hours a week of cycling, sometimes you feel and I, I get like this sometimes, you feel this real duty to train uh and you get training guilt like so if you miss a session because you just aren't feeling sitting on a bike that day you you feel bad about it afterwards and yeah. that sort of specialism can create that sort of slightly unhealthy atmosphere of feeling sort of feeling pressure from yourself to train
0: yeah, I, I appreciate your honesty, Jim. I think you're exactly right. And I think you're inside the head of a lot of athletes. And again, I, like I said, it's not just endurance athletes. You're talking from a, a cycling endurance athlete perspective, but I think, you know, I, CrossFit, the CrossFit games, I don't know if you ever watched the CrossFit games. So they're pretty, yeah. they're pretty exciting. So one of the events is walking on your hands. It's a, it's a gymnastic skill and it's impressive but unless you're going to the CrossFit games, do you need to spend a certain number of hours per week walking on your hands? Well, me as your coach, I would say, no, let's work on different exercises that are maybe just a little bit more functional. And so I think what, what you're trying to say, Jim, and what, and what I'm saying, I really enjoyed multi-sport. I liked triathlon, although I wasn't great at it. I really enjoyed it. and I trained too much to the triathlon side. Strength training has always been a part of my program, but I would get myself into a spot where I was getting injured or making my strength training workouts suffer because I was going too hard on on the endurance side of things. And so I think what we're trying to say, you know, something interesting happened to me this last year. I think that's worth sharing. So I got a knee injury and it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me because I discovered mobility. It talked about mobility a lot this year, as you mentioned earlier, and I didn't do one freaking race not one race i didn't do one triathlon i didn't do one duathlon i didn't do any cycling races not one and um and i and i didn't die i survived by not <laughs> doing <laughs> by not doing a race and in it, it and i feel i feel just a little bit more balanced about not having to have that thing on the calendar to to motivate me to train i've never really had to have that extra motivation to train but from an aerobic perspective i always liked having that thing up there to make me sort of push it a little harder on the run or maybe get that extra swim or bike or whatever in per week. But I think what we're trying to say is maybe it's okay if you don't have that extra race on the calendar. Maybe that's the first thing for you, but it shouldn't make you too tired to play with your kids. It shouldn't turn your hormones into this crazy spiral where your heart variability score is low. It shouldn't negatively affect your relationships with your family. It shouldn't make us, you know, so tired that we can't do the other things in life that we we should be doing like you alluded to earlier. It it shouldn't just make us really good in the gym or just really good in the pool or just really good on the bike or just running in a straight line or just walking on our hands. It should be, fitness should be helping us become more holistically balanced and strong everywhere.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah you're absolutely right uh, and that's the th- that's the thing uh the better you get at some, within the amateur sphere the more the better you want to be at it and so you you start taking it more and more seriously and you start putting more and more pressure on yourself and you lose sight of the fact that you're actually in my case I'm actually a I'm actually a writer I'm not an athlete. I my job, the way I make a living is as an athlete and uh, also, you know, I do I do other things as well, which I have other hobbies. I, I like kind of live music and gigs and stuff. And sometimes you can lose sight of doing other things because you're like training, training, training. And you can get in this head state where you just become so focused on training that you lose sight of other things that are important in life and um, that's something that's a challenge that I have faced a lot with regards to a lot of different areas uh, which I think you're going to go into like one of which is particularly like say my relationship with food uh, Mm -hmm. and other other things as well um, to a lesser extent perhaps.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good transition. So as I alluded to earlier, I think you're just such a dang good writer. I wanted to read an excerpt um, from your blog um, that talks a little bit about your disordered eating. I think it's a really honest piece that I think will resonate with, uh, with my audience a lot because um, I'm sure there's lots of other folks that, that struggle with this. So you wrote this awesome article. It's called Overcooking and Undereating, a Cautionary Tale. And as always, Jim has, you know, sort of his tongue in cheek in a lot of different uh, pieces that he writes. He's, he, he writes with uh, honesty and, and humor, and I really enjoy it. So I quote from Jim. He says, I always had view, viewed images of the prose at their peak leanness with a mixture of disgust and awe. Images of the stick-like figures of like Froome and Poel's flying through the high peaks always struck a slightly romantic nerve the classic image of the solitary troubled climber. Whilst I knew their physique to be one that should be neither idolized or aspired to, it sort of intrigued and appealed to me. The gaunt, slightly shocking look on their faces, the pointy cheekbones, collarbones and elbows did fascinate somewhat. Any athlete, be they pro or amateur, who tries to manipulate their weight and body composition to be optimal, that is minimal in this case, in time for a certain event, knows that trying to lose a few kg for their A races and then maintaining that feathery mass is far from fun. I know this and yet enjoy the mild torture of attempting to be at my lightest all the time. Just as more is more in training, less is less with weight. This has caused me problems and discomforts of the whole of my recent adult life. A lack of weight and general resilience has led to minor ailments of all sorts, ranging from common bouts of anemia and Reynolds syndrome to digestive issues and constant sense of being cold, getting knocked out of line by small children, etc., etc. As I said, there is some humor in this, which I think is great. But that was just the way it was. I accepted it was an inevitable consequence. There's a slightly sick joke amongst the cycling community that when your mom or noun or aunt, insert any other elderly <laughs> female relative here, tells you that you look unwell, and you need to be fed, then that means you're on form. So if they're saying <laughs> you need to be fed, you're on form. I love that. So you're down at race weight and ready to fight. Another sign of this, in my experience, has been your heart rate monitor slipping down your chest. <laughs> Without a bit of extra temper to grip onto, the bloody thing just doesn't sit still. I craved both of these frustrating symptoms of being lean too lean. So Jim, I, 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 as I said, I think you're a great writer. I think it's super honest. It's funny. Um, and I think it's, it's not polarizing. I think a lot of people can really, that really resonates with them with a struggle of trying to, to have power and have strength, but still be light enough to be fast. And, and, and even sort of romanticizing the, the looks of professional bicyclists can be, can be almost, you know, dangerous, right?
1: Yeah for sure there's it's not a look to aspire to by any means and I I I don't really like you know want to look like Chris Froome or anything I I never did but I did always find it quite fascinating you know these these super lean like these just like machines on a bike and um and yeah I just slowly started for not that long after I started riding and realized I was naturally good at climbing, uh, developing this slightly strange relationship with food um, in that, yeah, it's in on a bike, it's all about maximizing your power to weight, so the power you can put through the pedals to the weight that you're carrying because the more the more power and the less weight means you go up a hill faster, basically. And, um, it's a real example of the way that you can, as a high performing, uh, amateur, you lose sight of things that are normal in life and which are actually healthy. So Mm -hmm. I, I still struggle with this, uh, issue, which I believe is kind of called orthorexia, I guess, or, um, there's also a term called like red S which is relative energy deficiency in sport whereby you're never quite fuel. You're not really fueling enough to reap the full rewards of your training because you're so focused on being lean or lightweight. You're not really actually fueling your body enough to, to do its best in in your actual sport. Um, And yeah, it's a, um it's a difficult thing and it's something that to be honest uh, i yeah i still struggle with and i have been having problems with it recently and it becomes difficult as well because as when i started lifting again i was very keen to um to gain some weight Mm -hmm. and to gain some muscle mass and i still do but then there's this fight whereby like well i'm a climber therefore i don't want to be too heavy uh uh so i don't want to gain too much weight but then i need to fuel the lifting i need to fuel the bike training and also i want to gain a little bit of muscle mass so that i'm more powerful on the bike but not so much that I get too heavy so I go slowly up a mountain and it just becomes a massive maelstrom in your head of of just conflicting emotions and then also I love, I love eating and like I love burgers, I love pizzas and I don't eat mm-hmm. them often enough because they make me happy uh, but I sort of don't really, I try not to let myself eat them too much where, whereas I wish I could, eat, I did eat them more because <laughs> they're nice. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate how frustrating it is to be, to be trying to build in that power and build in that extra little bit of mass that you know would be healthy for you, but always in the back of your mind worrying about the other side of the coin of having to haul that you know, up the mountain that just extra little bit. And so I'm sure that that's super frustrating. I think I'm almost blessed in the fact that I'm not good enough on the bike to worry about it. I'm like, yeah, it's still, I'm, I'm always gonna be slow. I may as well look good on the beach, right? <laughs> so I'll just put yeah, those pants yeah. on. In fact, I'm actually kind of doing the opposite thing. I, I've been shortening my rides with with my buddies here um, down to about an hour, which I know probably sounds a lot, almost like nothing to you, but it's an intense hour. And, you know, if I'm if I'm just trying to, you know, Build up um, an aerobic capacity and 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 do some good cardiovascular exercise for my heart and burn some calories. An hour is really pretty good. And I had sort of fallen into this pattern just because the groups that I were riding I was riding with would an hour and a half would actually be sort of the shorter ride. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I'm and I started noticing myself. In the gym, I was okay. I was still strong, but I started noticing some body body composition stuff happening. I wasn't retaining as much muscle. And so it's just a little tweak to to help balance myself out. So for me, it's almost almost of an opposite thing where I'm not necessarily looking at performance on the bike, but I, I was starting to lose some mass. Um, that I had it worked. I mean, you could appreciate this. It's dang hard work for an ectomorphic body type, which you and I both are, to put on muscle. It's really hard not only to put it on, but to maintain it from a caloric perspective and from a work perspective. So it is, it's, it's probably one of the trickiest things in sport is finding that, that, that balance between fueling your body and, and, and getting your workouts in that are going to, your support workouts or your accessory workouts, if you will, to, to push forward whatever it is that you're trying to boost performance in. It's, it's tricky and yeah. it's frustrating.
1: There's that old saying that you know performance, particularly. Well, it probably I think it applies in weightlifting and things, but I know certainly in endurance sports, it's, it's often said that your performance is kind of twenty percent training and eighty percent food. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's that's how much of it. That's how important your diet is. But so then you've got even if you do have this understanding of your diet it's you keep on getting these different theories going around and I was (laughs) toying with this the other day. So three or four years ago, particularly say, well, I think for all types of athletes, it was always, you know, have some protein before bed to fuel like overnight muscle regeneration. And now I know it's quite a different sort of line of thinking and you can probably bring the two together. So, a few years ago everybody was talking about protein before bed now everybody's talking about fasting for 16 hours (laughs) and it's like so what do you what what for for somebody who is knowledgeable but not an expert like me what what are you supposed to be doing what's the best you know yeah so much so there's almost too much knowledge and sometimes i think that with diet and nutrition at least you need to and this is the approach i try and follow is don't like follow any particular uh, rules or like you know fasting and don't eat this at that time and don't eat that at this time. Just listen to your body, eat a sensible diet that is natural. I, I'm a meat eater, but I try and eat predominantly plants. Uh, and yeah, the main thing is listen to your body and fuel it when it needs it. And I, I'm trying to do that more now because for the last seven, eight years of my life, I haven't listened to my body and I haven't always fueled it when it needs it. Yeah. I
0: think that's really a a smart thing to do for yourself. And that's good advice. And, you know, from a fasting perspective, if you're, if you're in a portion of your training where you're trying to add mass, it's okay to go ahead. And if you really like intermittent fasting, I would actually remove it for that period. Um, and then do, um, a prolonged fast. So maybe if you overnight fast every night, which I do and I like, um, but let's say I'm, I really want to put some mass on. I would, I would avoid that. I would go ahead and eat at a, you know, a nine or 10 hour interval in the morning when, when I normally wouldn't, but then put in a prolonged fast, maybe once a month because you get the bit, the real big benefits of fasting are, atophagy of cells, right? So like whenever you fast for over 24 hours, it's been shown that you actually have this big spring cleaning of your cells. You're getting rid of all the cells <clears throat> that your body sees as, oh, you're not do a, doing us any good. Like even cancer cells. It's pretty exciting. If you're an old guy like me and you're over 40, you already have some cancer cells building up. So if you do one of these nice 24 to 40 hour fast, you have this nice big spring cleaning in the body and you you get all the really big time like, extending life type of benefits of fasting um and not having to worry about sort of this calorie juggling that you might have to on a normal basis so i think like you said of listening to your body and if you're training those big you know five-hour sessions and your body's saying gosh i really need fat i really need carbs yeah the, it's about the quality of of the nutrients so it's good to hear you eating a lot of plant-based stuff because you're going to get a lot of quality nutrients there that's good
1: yeah yeah, if you should see my fridge. It's basically just like green. Nice. <laughs> it's kind of green, green and red things.
0: Yeah, I could mostly. come stay. It sounds like I could, I could eat there.
1: Well, I'm not sure, Paul. You're a big guy. Like it's only a small fridge. So maybe not enough. <laughs> I've finished it up in a day or two.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to talk. This actually is a good lead into, um, to, you know, to understanding what our body needs. You did some good. Evaluation of your heart rate variability. I've talked about it a number of times on my podcast, and I and I and as you're sh- is sort of reconfiguring things now with your program, we were talking off the air earlier about maybe you're going to start evaluating it, it again. So I think it might be something for you to add in as just a, an, another thing to look at while you're trying to balance out your training. But as we've talked about on the show a whole bunch of times, you know, with heart rate variability, you're actually understanding how stressed your body is how are you in a sympathetic state or a parasympathetic state and and on any given day because it's a daily activity you're going to understand you know what your training program is going to look like and and what you might need to do from a sleep a nutrition and even a, a parasympathetic standpoint like doing things like meditation and and walking and that that sort of thing so t- tell me tell my audience a little bit about you know, some of the stuff you've done with hearty variability. I know you had a really cool toy that you're using for a while.
1: Yeah. So I've got this, um, they're a new American brand who recently sort of, uh, started selling worldwide called whoop. And it's just a, uh, a wrist strap, uh, which those of you who are watching this can kind of see here. Um, and it, um, It measures your sleep, your heart rate variability, and also a a heart rate-based sort of stress score. So it will give you a result at the end of every day of what your stress or whoops term for it is strain, but based on your, you know, your workouts, but also just your um, day-to-day sort of activity. Uh, So if you go shopping, then that's going to, you know, shopping for groceries, that's going to up your strain. So, yeah, I used it for quite a long time. Uh, Well, a a long time, probably about nine months. And it was giving me HRV scores and sleep quality scores and things because it's got a very accurate sleep tracker as well. And uh, I understand all the theory behind, you know, when your heart rate variability is indicating it's time for you, that you're fresh and you're ready to go you know, that's when you want to do your most intense workouts. Uh, whereas if it's saying uh, your HRV is, um, is low, then you're tired and you need to sort of take it easy. Um, I think I've got that the right way around. You do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the problem is, is when you're trying to, for, for, a, unless you're a full-time athlete and you have a very flexible lifestyle, it's the fact that you might have on your training plan one day do 5 hours on the bike and then the other days are uh, maybe one, 1 hours of bike or or uh, strength training and on those days where you have lower duration workouts you plan around all your work and you plan your phone calls and you plan to you know send off this report or whatever this blog or draft and then it's it's about having the flexibility to follow your hrv uh monitor but i do think it's a um i do think it's a valuable tool and i think the way that um w- when i have issues with the, this kind of eating problem that i have when it gets out of control and i lose a bit of weight suddenly i lose a lot of uh my ability to train in that I can still train but the workouts aren't good and you were saying Paul about how um, you know keeping an eye on your HRV my HRV would give me a good insight obviously into when I'm fresh yes. and strong but also into my diet as well because I know that I know that diet quality or diet volume perhaps has an impact on your HRV so i've got this gadget and it's just been sitting not doing anything, and I, I kind of did stop using it a bit, uh, but I'm thinking about going back to it. I think one of the issues I had with it was the way that uh, if you start reading into HRV too much and it's telling you your HIV is, is poor, don't train anything too hard today, but you sort of have to train something hard. <laughs> yes. Then you get in the back of your mind, oh, my HRV is poor, therefore I'm not going to be able to hit the numbers in this workout. And then you, such a big part of your training is your mental approach to it. That if you've got something which has told you first thing that morning you're going to be rubbish at your training session, yeah, then it yeah. doesn't put you in a good place. And that is that I think that is the reason why I stopped using it. Actually, and that was the main reason.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. So, so yeah, let's talk about that. So heart rate variability, you're basically, this is not very scientific, so forgive me, but in layman's terms, because I'm a layman, (laughs) if your, your heart rate variability is really consistent and really sort of short together, the space between your heart beats is really consistent and really short. You're going to be in a sympathetic state. uh, Your HRV score is going to be low. Uh, and opposite, if you have sort of space between your heartbeats, the time between your heartbeats is longer and sort of inconsistent, that, mean you're, that means your body is more parasympathetic, more at rest. And so what I was picturing for you, Jim, and, I, and that's a good point. First of all, it's the mental piece of, okay, my heart variability score is in the tank today. Um, I'm going to have a crap workout because my heart variability score sucks, even though I may feel okay. That's a good point. I think that's the same reason why some of my buddies just don't even look at their heart rate while they're riding because they don't, <laughs> don't want to know. Either they're going to be scared or they don't want to know the number and then they perform however they're going to perform without it, which is an interesting thing. But for you, I wonder if maybe you don't even look at the thing. Maybe you take your HRV and so you've got column one is your HRV score daily. Look at it every week as uh, average then sleep your sleep for a whole week average daily but, but over an average tss score we talked about so training peaks tss score it's basically just gathering up all your heart rate data from your workouts and giving you a score if it's really high heart rate over a longer period of time it's gonna be a higher score and then i think your fourth column gym is nutrition just total calories you eat pretty well so we won't worry about the quality of those and then what are your workouts like overlaid across those four columns? Good workout, good workout, good workout. And all those other scores sort of are consistent with that. Maybe your calories are above X. And so it's more of a trend thing for you than I think it will be like a daily workout evaluation, like whether or not you're ready to push it. It might be an interesting way to see if you're at a certain calorie level, if your workouts and your HRV and your TSS sort of follow suit with that. It would just be interesting. If I if I was coaching you, I would, I would be interested to look at that for like two months.
1: Yeah, do, doing it that way that, like you said, almost as a retrospective looking back on a week
0: mm-hmm. just to
1: see what was going on but not using it to influence my decisions on my training or – well, yeah – influence what I did on the bike or what I ate it would be interesting just to see oh so that day Jim you did a you know a high intensity workout and you probably didn't eat quite enough and your HIV the next day was in the tank then Mm. you know that's yeah that's giving good data and would give me a better understanding of what I need to be giving my body and probably be a good stimulus for me to sort my kind of issues around eating out as well. So I've got this gadget and it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, getting back into using again. So I may, I may well steal. I'm going to hold suggestion. you to
0: it. I'm going to hold you to it. We're <laughs> going to, we're going to check back in with you. We're going to see how it goes. There's
1: no charge. is No that.
0: charge. No, I'm, you're my buddy. I want to, I want to see you, you know, do what well. I want to see you succeed. You, we, you're going to write the most epic stuff when you're feeling your best. So I've, I want to read more of your stuff. It's got to be good.
1: Yeah, for sure. Oh, thanks,
0: man. <laughs> we got to talk about Strava. I, and I know I've got to let you go. I've had you on for a long time. But before before we go, you just wrote a really good article just a couple days ago, actually, about Strava. And for, for those of you that are into endurance or even crazy people like me that even put their strength workouts up there. Now, my strength workouts, I include sometimes a video with some helpful tips. So it's not just an annoying thing for somebody that's just there for endurance. You might learn a thing or two if you check out my strength workouts on Strava, but I, <laughs> I know it drives some of my endurance buddies crazy. But so you wrote this article. Do you pronounce it Stravanoia? Is that is that the correct pronunciation for it? Uh, like paranoia, yeah, but Stravanoia? Okay. So you, you point to how it can be pretty destructive to us athletes on why we push to perform at a certain level at any given session <laughs> and where we maybe don't want to or need to or should. And we're not talking about, you know, perseverance here. This is just trying to, you know, put up this impressive number for your Strava portfolio. So, and and I loved how you say, you know, if you have a bad workout, you really fill in, you know, the, uh, and you said the all important uh, title and notes sections to sort of describe, you know, why it was sort of a crap session. So, but you had some good points, like, you know, are we worrying too much about how we appear on this social media tool uh, instead of just, you know, having fun and getting a good workout in and worrying about our health.
1: Yeah, I think um, Strava is all in. It's a great thing. It's a, You know, for some people, it's their way of tra- tracking their fitness. It's a good way of like building routes. It's a good way of can kind of meet people through Strava. Uh, but there is, I think for some, you can start taking it a bit to sort of, you, you can start worrying about it so i know s- some people and i got this phrase strava Neuer, from a podcast i was listening to about pro cyclists and that's where they coined the term hmm. but there's this paranoia around strava you don't want to look when you're taking yourself kind of seriously you don't want to look weak on strava so if say your session for the day is a recovery ride and your recovery bike ride should be at 150 watts or say 20 kilometers an hour if you don't use power then you actually think oh rather than doing it 150 watts I might just do it 180 watts like that bit harder so if anybody looks on my Strava I kind of look a bit more, I can call it a recovery ride, but I'm actually doing it that bit harder and it makes me look that bit fitter. It's by doing it that little bit harder, you're, you're not getting the benefits out of that session. Like, um, oh,
0: Jim, that's a recovery ride for you. Wow, you're strong.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a recovery ride, but you're still doing it this fast Yeah, kind of it's like. And I think uh, quite a lot of people kind of do that. And um, I think that, Strava can become a little bit destructive in the way sort of like Instagram or Facebook it it can be used as a tool for painting yourself in the best possible light possible mm-hmm. and not really being honest with yourself or with yeah not being honest with yourself about how you feel and it can just lead you to do weird things in workouts and I also think as well that uh, the way when you're Look at, looking on a Strava file, so you can get you give it a title and you can put some little notes in afterwards. <laughs> it gives a good insight into an athlete's uh, mindset as well. So yes. if they're on. If an athlete's on form, there and they have a great ride, they'll probably put in a few little notes saying, you know, legs felt great. You know, did my <laughs> hit a PR up this? And yeah. sometimes when they're when they're feeling on bad form, they either. If it's me, if I'm on awful form, I just don't even want to look at the file and I kind of ignore it. Or you just come out with this ton of excuses uh, to kind of justify why you had a bad session. And I just... is a great tool. I just think you can take it too seriously and it can lead to this slightly strange activity behaviour, which all comes back perhaps to this way that serious amateurs lose sight of why they're doing this sport in the first place.
0: Yes. It's so true. You know what I think the power move is right now? Um, and I don't even know if my buddy knows that he's doing a power move, but like my friend um, back in Kansas is super, super strong. Just a, an amazing endurance athlete. Uh, you know, Dirty Kanza uh, in Kansas, Yeah, yeah. the yeah. epic gravel riding race. So he did the, I can't remember if he did the hundred or 200 last year doesn't matter they're both amazing epic whatever and so hit. you know what his strava session said for the 13 hour however many hundreds of miles it just said morning ride no description you know it just said i say yeah. i think that's the power movie you just let the uh, session speak for itself you know just morning yeah. ride cabal.
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah i think that's that's a sign of real sort of confidence. Um, <laughs> some of the best athletes, some of the best athletes I know, don't they? They upload a ride to Strava and they look at it, but they don't bother like writing anything about it. So they might have, yeah, they might have just one dirty can, and they're just like, yeah, <laughs> just a morning ride. Yeah, just a yeah, morning no, ride, no, no big sure. deal. <laughs> well,
0: the other thing that's getting out of control, yeah, in my opinion. Absolutely. On, on Strava is these badges. <clears throat> now I like, I actually do like the climbing thing every month. I think that's kind of fun. And you see how your buddies are doing with that. But there's this one, and I talked to you about this earlier. It's 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 called the New Balance Run You Challenge or badge or whatever. And so it says last January, the average active Strava runner ran 45 miles. But in 2019, New Balance challenges you to aim higher go 2.019 times farther this year and cover 91 miles by the end of the month. And so it's like this thing of like just more is better. Like we, if you go yeah. further, it's better. And and if you go higher, it's better. And so some new runner is going to go out. Uh, they're going to like, okay, well, I've got to get this 91 mile challenge going. That's 23 miles a week. Some new runner is going to start getting shin splints five miles into this and get hurt. They're not doing mobility yeah. work or strength training they won't even finish the challenge They think there's something wrong with them. It's their fault. It's this ridiculous challenge. Like further is not always better running. Isn't the only activity people should be doing for health. Like if you're doing 23 miles a week, that could take a crazy amount of time if somebody doesn't have that much time to exercise. So I think Strava kind of encourages more time and speed and distance all sort of in the name of health and performance. And it sort of sets a false guideline for health. And it's kind of dangerous for, for new athletes that maybe don't know better.
1: Yeah there's a very similar example which is uh, Fest 500 which Rafa kind of sponsor mm, Rafa codes brand which is basically you have to ride 500 kilometers between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve and that's a great there's a great intention behind it which is to kind of keep you healthy and active over the festive period and so you know keep you keep you moving but a lot of people turn themselves inside out particularly in like Northern, Northern Europe. It's cold as heck. It's really bad weather and it's really cold. People turn themselves inside out to hit this 500 K in eight days and then they might do it, but then they, a lot, I know two people who are strong riders who completed it and then spent about 10 days hardly riding because they were ill or Mm. like kind of overtrained. and it's like, well, what was, what was the point? Yeah. Really? That's
0: that whole balance thing. It's just, it's getting yourself out of balance to go after a badge to, for what? Yeah. It's silly. Yeah.
1: That means absolutely nothing.
0: Yeah. All right. I've got, I bet you've got some stories. I got to let you go. A couple quick questions though. What's your funniest story from a, just a bike ride or, or a race? Do you have anything that, that comes to mind in all your years of riding?
1: Wow. Uh, this one's caught me off guard. There's, Oh, I can't, I'm not sure. I've seen, well, it's not funny. It's sort of, it, bit grim like on a few endurance rides i've seen plenty of times people either on the marmot that we were talking about which is a huge ride through the french alps uh, i've seen people being sick by the side of the road people having to you know uh, take a number two by the side <laughs> of the road so i wouldn't say that's funny but it's funny oh it's funny <laughs> it brings to light it brings to light the uh, level of challenge uh in terms of pure funny stuff i I can't think of anything off the top of my head sorry i'll if i let if i think of something i'll i'll let you know and you can put it in the show notes
0: if you ever see me ride that that'll be your story right there it's just this (laughs) terrible on the flats and the climbs like
1: massive muscly man going on a bike why is
0: he trying to keep up with all of us he keeps trying to come every week
1: what is he doing
0: all right best (laughs) bike route you've ever ridden i know you've done some epic stuff what is your favorite
1: oh wow well in terms of I wouldn't be able to specify a particular route but in terms of area to ride a bike mm. uh, quite a lot of people who know me well will know that I absolutely love the Pyrenees which is the mountain range kind of between France and Spain so it's uh the south west of France and it's it's not as well known as the Alps uh, the mountains aren't as high but um it's just absolutely beautiful it's like kind of untouched by tourism so there's less like big ski stations and ski and tourist towns it's this just the the greens in the woods and the meadows are like the greenest greens you've ever seen there's like there's donkeys and sheep like walking all over the road it's it's like the most magical place i've ever been and i i I race there every year and it's if i could i would go and live there it's like yeah the pyrenees the french pyrenees is is like no other and i urge people to go there but i also don't want people to go there because (laughs) the the beauty of it is that it's natural and it's not being tainted by over tourism right but yeah it's it's amazing
0: that sounds awesome Last question, Jim. So, when you think about the different dimensions of wellness—physical—it sounds like you're pretty much on autopilot. But when you think about your physical, your intellectual, occupational, emotional, social, environmental, spiritual—all the dimensions of wellness—how do you find your wellness balance? And it's sort of this—it's sort of almost silly to ask because it changes for everybody every day. But how do you best juggle all these different dimensions of wellness? What are some of the things that you do to to help you sort of Make it through and stay as balanced as you can.
1: Uh, oh, it's a difficult question. I try
0: ride your bike. I, I know that one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Although I do take it all very seriously, and I do let it impact the way I behave. I try not to take. I I try to remember that not to take it too seriously as well. Uh, and I try to just try as much as possible to remain grounded in terms of sort of specific tactics. Something I've started recent, doing slightly more recently, and since I've been getting a bit kind of worked up about things with dietary issues and health issues, is I've started uh, started meditating a bit. So not, uh, I, I only have been doing it kind of informally using an app called Headspace. Oh, that's a great so app. Do, yeah. So I haven't even subscribed yet. I'm still on the free trial, mm-hmm. uh, but I think I will subscribe. Uh, I. I used to use an app called Calm, but I've started to find it a bit annoying. Uh, so I'm going to try Headspace. But I do find that a bit of meditation, I normally do it when I'm lying in bed before bed. Just, I don't know, and I, I do want to start trying to do it in the morning as well. I do find it kind of clears my brain out a bit and it sort of makes me feel kind of calmer uh, and perhaps makes me feel a bit more lucid and makes things clearer in my mind, particularly yeah. when I'm like got a lot of things going on in my mind, which are perhaps causing me issues. So yeah, perhaps, perhaps that would be it. A bit of, bit of meditation.
0: Yeah. I can't remember the name of the, the founder um, of that app, but he's the one who speaks. Oh gosh. It's on the tip yeah. of my tongue. Just his voice. He's just got like a, he's just got like a soothing voice, like his voice alone, like just sort of gets you in the right spot. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to give it away if you haven't heard this one yet, but one of the best things I heard him say was to think of meditation. Like I like traffic, like you've got this road out in front of you and uh, cars are emotions. And so a truck goes by and that's sadness and another car goes by and that's anger. And, Maybe another one goes by and that's happiness. And so you can choose to get on the ride for any one of those and sort of take the roller coaster on of down the anger trail or the frustration trail or whatever. Or you can just say, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting car, but I'm just going to let that pass by. And so people that get really good at meditation, like that sort of transcendental stuff, sort of are really good at just sort of recognizing that something's there and then just sort of letting it flow through. I am not very good at it yet, but when I've practiced it, I've seen myself to your point in certain situations where I'm like, okay, I'm recognizing that this is the spot where I would normally get in that car and I'm just going to try to let that go by. And it, it can be pretty powerful. Um, especially if it's a, uh, if it's a car that's moving pretty fast. Yeah. yeah it, it's about
1: rec- recognizing if you've got a certain emotion, kind of building, and just yeah, like you say, as the um, the app teaches you, just letting those emotions kind of go, come by you, and like acknowledging that but sort of not getting on that truck. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's something I do is, uh, getting good at.
0: All right, Jim. Well, thank you so much. I kept you for a long time. I really appreciate you coming on my show. It was really fun to talk to you. We got to have you come back sometime. We're going to ask you some questions about putting together that little uh, spreadsheet with your heart variability and some MC nutrition. I hope that that helps balance things out for you. Really appreciate your honesty and sharing your story. And uh, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on. It's my
0: pleasure, buddy. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. Also, thank you to Jim Cotton for joining me. A few things you can do to help out Boost Health if you would be so kind. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast in your podcast app. Leave a review on the Boost Health Facebook page. Subscribe to the Boost Health TV YouTube channel and follow My Boost Health on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also visit the Boost Health website at MyBoostHealth.com for links to everything along with more motivation, and information until next time. This is Paul Sandberg for Jim Cotton saying goodbye and find your balance.